as we've been in this section now for several weeks, but we'll begin in verse 21 of our reading. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Let's bow in prayer again. Father, as we open the word of God this morning, we pray that you might use it by the power of your spirit in every heart and life. May you give us understanding and discernment within your word as we see the revealed Christ. And Lord, may we have hearts that again are receptive and ready to receive and that the word of God may take root therein and produce the fruit that is glorifying and honoring unto you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to stand and proclaim your word May we be faithful and true to that which you have given us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week I explained to you the reason that as to why I have included verses 21 through 23, which we've already covered in detail in weeks past, within this portion of our study when we've already verses in the previous weeks of study is due to the reason being that verses 21 through 29 is one sentence. This is one continuation of thought actually in the text. And so it means that it carries this this continuation of the thought from verse 21 throughout verse 29. And so as we as we see these connected within the the grammatical structure of the text, it's important that we not separate them, though we will study them as we work through, of course, individually we're looking at verses and the words and such working through the text, I still want you to be uh, reminded of the connection that is present. And last week we considered several passages, and we're going to review some of those again concerning uh, the teaching of Scripture in relation to the sufferings of Christ and our identity in them. But before we get there, I do want to go back to verses 21 and uh, through 24 specifically, which we're still in verse 24, and we've been there now for a couple of weeks. But if you look at verse 21 in relation to verse 23, because I want to go ahead and point this out to you again, because it's of of significance. Uh, When you read verse 21, Paul states, and you, speaking to these Colossian believers, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. He's speaking of their past. Remember, we saw this weeks ago, how that Paul deals with the past, the future, and the present. Rather than past, present, future, he says past, future, present. In Ephesians, Paul deals with the present. Chapter 1 is all about their position in Christ. Then chapter 2 is about their past and then their future. So Paul deals with their present, the past, and the future in Ephesians. He deals with, in Philippians and Colossians, he does the same order. Him personally speaking of his own life, speaks of his, of his, uh, of his present, and, or I'm sorry, of his, of his past, and then his uh, future, and then his present. 
when he talks about forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto the things which are before. And then he says, where unto I've obtained, therein I walk. So he's talking about his present there. So he deals with past, future, and present. And he does the same thing here within this text. He begins with their past, the believer's past, then he moves into their future, and then into their present. And it's important to recognize this, and one of the reasons is because of what we are about to look at again, just to remind you. In verse 21, he says, And you that were sometime, this is past, alienated, and enemies, he's talking about former times, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. When he makes this statement, he is saying that they were strangers from God, they were separated from God, and their wicked works, this is so important for you to recognize, their wicked works is not what separated them from God. They were strangers and alienated in their mind from God, which was manifested by the wicked works, which continued. So the wicked works were a demonstration and a manifestation of the spiritual condition of these people prior to salvation. And that's very important when you move to verse 23. Because then Paul speaks, he goes on in verse 21, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, here's the future part, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now notice he does deal with their present briefly when he says, Yet now hath he reconciled. So this reconciliation, again, is God removing the hostility. Remember, they were alienated strangers. There was enmity between them and God. But now in the body of the flesh of Christ... God has removed this hostility, completely removing it. And then he says, by this work of Christ on the cross. That's what he's referencing, of course, in the body of his flesh. But then he says in verse 23, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, so there, and, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So when you come to verse 23, you have to view it in light of verse 21. Paul says, you were alienated, you were strangers, and the wicked works were the evidence of this fact. But you've been reconciled. So that's an absolute statement, definitive, definitive statement. He's saying, you are reconciled by God. Not, you may be reconciled. No, you who are reconciled by God. Then verse 23 is actually showing us, verse 21, the evidence of one who's genuinely been reconciled by God. He's not saying, okay, if you continue in what you've heard, then you'll be reconciled. No, he's saying if you've been reconciled, then you will continue herein. And if you are not continuing in truth, it's because you've never been reconciled. So this is not a conditional statement for reconciliation, but it is the evidence of reconciliation. And it's also explaining to these Colossian professing believers, those who may profess to believe, he's saying if this is not true in your life, then you've really not been reconciled. So again, this is not a talking about some trust that we have in ourselves or our, our, our faithfulness or our sufficiency by any means. So we began last week, or a week or two ago, looking at verse 24, in which Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now he says, I, Paul, am made a minister. Who now, I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. This is a very interesting statement that Paul makes here. And we're going to look, delve into verse 24 uh, this morning and basically spend our time here, again, looking at other verses of Scripture that help us to understand the truth of what Paul is saying here. Last week, again, we considered these passages of Scripture, many, which teach us about identifying in the sufferings of Christ. One of those, of course, being Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. 
As I previously mentioned to you, Paul had written the first epistle to the Corinthian church as a letter of rebuke. Throughout that letter, Paul is just raking them over the coal, spiritually speaking, and talking about how they are carnal, how they're carnally minded, they're not walking according to the grace and the calling of God in their lives. And, and some people try to speak of that, and, and this is a misnomer, but some people reference that and speak of quote-unquote carnal Christianity. There is no such thing. Christ was not carnally minded, and neither will any Christ-like person be carnally minded. Now, they were believers who were carnally minded, but they were not they were not following after Christ at this point. That's the whole problem. But notice with me as well, 1 Corinthians, when taught properly in light of 2 Corinthians as well, helps us to understand that God will not allow those whom he has called as disciples of Christ to continue in such carnality. The Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians had totally turned from the manner in which they were living in 1 Corinthians. And Paul addresses that. He talks about how that they had a godly sorrow which resulted in repentance and how that he rejoiced in that and how that they were not being self-righteous but they had judged that which was sin in the church in a proper manner. And then he says, okay, you've done that, so now it, you comfort one another once there's been restoration that's been made. And so Paul definitely shows us that God does not allow this just to continue within the church or his people to walk in such a manner. And so this rebuke in chapter or in 1 Corinthians 1 is that of their carnality, of course. However, in the second epistle, we find it is an epistle of comfort and instruction. And Paul expressed his thankfulness for the repentance, as I've mentioned. He comforts them, however, in the beginning chapter of 2 Corinthians. And the question then would be, why? If 1 Corinthians was all a rebuke, is Paul comforting them because he was so hard on them? No, that's not the comfort he's giving. It has nothing to do with that in reality. Paul's comfort that he provides in his letter for them is due to the fact that they now were identifying in the sufferings of Christ as they had turned from their carnality and carnal ways and began to follow after righteousness. And it was for this reason that Paul begins his letter by stating 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Know what Paul is saying. Here, I explained it while ago. The comfort Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 has nothing to do with a letter rebuke prior. It has to do with God using that truth to turn their hearts back to him. They repent of their carnality and are now following and pursuing after righteousness as genuine disciples of Christ, which will inevitably, without exception, result in suffering. And so Paul says, as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you are of the consolation or this comfort. Having already contemplated many passages, as I've mentioned, throughout the scriptures concerning suffering for the gospel, many of which we will begin revisit today, it is important that we give proper attention 
to all that Paul declares in verse 24 of this text concerning his personal experience of identifying in the sufferings of Jesus. Let's read verse 24 again. Who now, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Last week we looked at this to some degree and answered several questions concerning, you know, how is it that one can rejoice in sufferings. Paul was not uh, masochistic in that he was not enjoying pain and suffering. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying, oh, I take pleasure in suffering. I enjoy suffering. No, he's saying I can rejoice in the midst of the suffering. But there's reasons as to why that is so. He says, who now, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now listen to this next statement. This is a very interesting statement. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So this morning, I want to begin to unfold from this passage the truth of Paul's joy and the reason Paul joyed in his suffering. If we as believers and followers of Christ, if we as disciples of Christ, if we as those who would pursue after righteousness because we've been declared and made righteous, and righteousness has been imputed unto us through Jesus Christ, if we are to remain or maintain joy and remain joyful in suffering, there are some truths of which we must not only be aware and acknowledge, but also must embrace, as did Paul. First, I want you to notice that we can rejoice when suffering for the right cause. I mean, this is just spelled out throughout Scripture clearly. Paul says in verse 24, the beginning of the verse, who now rejoice, I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, he goes on, and we're going to look at this in a moment, he does not just make a redundant statement when he says for his body, which is the church in the latter part. Though Paul is speaking to his body, the church, when he says you, he's speaking to those believers at Colossae, and he's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. But he's not emphasizing the fact that they are the body of Christ at this point in the latter part of the verse. So why would he say for you in this, in the beginning of the statement, and then emphasize the rejoicing of sufferings for the body church, the body of Christ, which is just moments later as he writes in continuation of verse 24. Well, I think what we see first of all in this is that Paul is helping us to understand that while he identified clearly in the sufferings as part of the sufferings of Christ, he also experienced that his sufferings, or explained that his sufferings that he experienced were on the behalf of the Colossian believers. And, and that's important for us to acknowledge that suffering is directly related here to personal sacrifice. Paul says, I personally am suffering for you. The sufferings I am experiencing is for your benefit. It is for your good. And Paul is rejoicing in that. Consider this for a moment. I rejoice that I am counted worthy to suffer for your sakes. So that is absolute selflessness here. And might I say to you that righteous suffering or suffering for righteousness sake is always sacrificial on our part. It will absolutely be, without question, sacrificial. So Paul is saying, I suffer for you and I rejoice in that privilege. As I previously mentioned, Paul had never met these believers. He did not establish this church at Colossae. So his willing sacrifice on their behalf stands out even more so, being that he had never had a personal connection with them meaning in the physical realm, in the flesh, but he did have a spiritual interest in them all the same. You'll find Paul's letter to the church at Colossae does not differ in his personal interest, investment of truth, 
or desire or sacrifice, it does not lack at all in comparison to any of his other epistles, even of that of the church at Philippi, whom he loved dearly, who administered to him greatly, and had a special place in his heart. But do you know what? You find Paul's same desire and interest for these believers to walk in the truth of the gospel in this letter as you do his letter to the church at Philippi. And it's, it didn't matter about a personal connection. And did, neither did it matter that Paul's the one who started this church. That meant nothing to him. Paul said, I rejoice in suffering for your sake sa- sacrificially, even though I've never met you. Colossians 2, 1 and 2 says, For I would that ye, would, that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Here you see Paul pouring his heart out. Never met these people before. All he knows is the testimony he's heard from Epaphras concerning them. And yet here he is saying, I have great conflict. I am invested into your spiritual well-being. I sacrifice and count it joy to suffer sacrificially, personally, on your behalf, people I've never seen, never met, never spoken to in person. We find all of that being true. Nonetheless, Paul willingly suffered on behalf of the Colossian believers in his labor of grounding and rooting them in the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Might I say to you, if we're, if we're going to maintain joy and suffering for the cause of Christ and for righteousness' sake, it is true that we must be sacrificial, but we must understand, again, that this is not about us and our suffering. It's about the propagation of the gospel and others being rooted and grounded in the truth even in the midst of the suffering. Number two, we can rejoice when we identify and are part of the sufferings of Christ. Now, we may have made sta- I may have made statements like that before, but I want you to see how Paul unpacks that in this verse. When he says, or when, when I say, we can rejoice when we suffer for the right cause, of course, for righteousness' sake, but also we can rejoice when we identify in our part of the sufferings of Christ. I am being very specific in stating that, not generalizing it. Here's what I'm saying to you. Let me ask a question. Let me phrase it like this, and then we're going to look into what Paul says, and you'll see it to be true. How many of you believe that your salvation is personal to you? I mean, do you have a... Okay, let me back up. It's not a trick question, by the way. How many of you believe that your relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ is a personal relationship? Do you or do you not? That means that God has personally called you out, has personally reconciled you, removed hostility, has personally justified you. This is not some group effort. This is God's personal working in your life. If that is true, which it is, then he also has designated for you to have a personal part in his sufferings. We generalize this normally. We really do. We, oh, we've partaken the sufferings of Christ. No, there is a part that you have in identifying personally in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That is your part alone, just as this was Paul's part alone. 
Not everyone was in prison with Paul, were they? Do you think Paul took that personally? The man's in prison for the sake of the gospel. I think that's pretty personal, don't you? I mean, he's the one there. there the Colossian believers aren't there. The Philippians aren't there. The Ephesians aren't there. Those in Rome aren't there. Paul is there. Paul is in prison. That's pretty personal. Now, the question would be, well, was that ordained of God? Absolutely was ordained of God. And let me give you this as well, just to let you know. Think of it like this for a moment. Had Paul not been in prison writing these letters, if he would have been there in person with them, speaking to them, by the way, there is much Paul said that we do not have in Scripture. I hope you're aware of that. And if, if Paul had been there preaching to them and teaching them in person and not in prison, we would not have the letter of Colossians. We would not have the prison epistles. Are you following? This was God's ordained purpose for Paul to suffer in this capacity. And not every believer suffers in that same way, but it was for Paul. And if that's true of Paul as one specifically called of God as an apostle to the Gentiles, then truly it's also just as absolute and true for those who called of God into his grace, into this redemption. We have a part in the sufferings of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. It is one thing for us to identify in the sufferings of Christ while it is another to understand that there are afflictions of Christ which are ours to endure. It's not just some general thing. I think I'll take a look. I told you, you know, salvation, redemption in Christ is not a buffet line. You don't go through and say, well, I'll take a heap of grace and a lot of mercy and I'll take a whole lot of love, but yes, yeah, suffering, no, I don't really like that too much. Let's, not, let's skip over that. No, the fact of the matter is we receive Christ and we receive his. And Paul even says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul says, I want to know him in every possible manner that I can know him. And if it takes suffering for me to know him, I want to know his sufferings. And so Paul understood that. He understood he had a part. And we're going to see that even further, as I've mentioned to you many times. Verse 24 says, And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. The verb phrase fill up refers to complete and fulfill, and the statement which is behind means that which is lacking or that which is after. So Paul is explaining in this verse that it was for him, as ordained by God, to pick up the sufferings of Christ which remain yet to be fulfilled as a follower of Christ. In other words, here's what he's actually saying. He's saying, yes, Jesus suffered and perfectly fulfilled the purpose and plan of God, but he left behind sufferings for us to identify and personally following after him. Acts 9.16, the Lord told of such suffering reserved for Paul at the time of his conversion. Let's not forget this in Acts 9.16. For I, the Lord, will show him, Paul, how great things he, Paul, must suffer for my Jesus' name's sake. Oh, wait a minute. Was Paul ordained by God to redemption on the road to Damascus? Was this some accident or some casual meeting? Absolutely not. But at the same time as conversion, Paul speak, or God speaks to Ananias and says to Ananias, I will show Paul what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. It was ordained by God for Paul to identify specifically in personal sufferings 
for the cause of Christ. And if you believe that's true about Paul, is it not also true about us? Peter deals with that, and we'll get to that in a few moments. So suffering is not only a possibility within the lives of those who follow Jesus, but you, you must understand this. It's not only as believers in Jesus Christ that, well, as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Christ, that, that I may have some suffering in my life. You know, we, we've missed something here terribly in this, because we don't, we, it, it, here's, the, here's the issue. And, and I, look, I say we, so I include myself. We would rather be comfortable than comforted. And so we generalize all of this saying, oh, well, you know, we want to be comfortable Christians. We live a comfortable lifestyle in America. We want to be comfortable in our walk with God. Listen, again, Jesus never said, God, so you can be comfortable. No, I'll send you the comforter and he will comfort you. And he promised we would be comforted, which again, as I said last week, to be comforted immediately implies that there is suffering or trouble or tribulation that we are comforted in, for which comfort is needed. And we don't want that. We don't like that. But I'd say the reason we don't is because we have a very skewed view and perspective. Might I say, it very well could be that we as much as we would love to say that we align with the church at Ephesus, it maybe we align a little more with the church at Corinth. In our carnality, in our, in, our, in our temporal mindset that Paul speaks of in Corinthians. So suffering, understand, suffering is not only a possibility and probability within the lives of those who follow Jesus, but suffering is a mark within the lives of those who follow Jesus. And if there's no outside opposition, if there is no outside oppression, then one is not genuinely pursuing the steps of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this, yeah, yes. Listen to what he says. And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus may suffer and probably will suffer. It's possible they will suffer. No. And all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Again, the word persecution, let me define that for you because I think that we, we don't understand that in, in, in the English language because we think of persecution, we immediately relate it to martyrdom, immediately relate it to people having their heads chopped off, being beaten with whips, being and hung and, and hanging on a cross. I mean, that's, and that is definitely suffering and persecution. There's no doubt about that. But the word persecution used here literally is that of opposition and oppression. So I will say to you, that every single believer in Jesus Christ who is following after Christ is going to face oppression and opposition from the outside. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter writes and says this, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. An example of following his steps how? His righteousness? Of course. His submission to the Father? Of course. But it results in what? Suffering. As a follower of Jesus, suffering is not only to be expected, but it's to be embraced when we suffer, when the suffering is due to our identity with Christ. The language Paul used in this verse, referring to his personal suffering for Jesus, indicates that the sufferings of Christ have yet to have been fully fulfilled in that we as followers continue in his sufferings. See, we talk about being part of the body of Christ, right? In the flesh. We are the fleshly representation of the body of Christ because he has redeemed us. He's made us part of his body. And, and we rejoice in that. 
And we say, thank you, Lord, for making us a part of the body of Christ. Thank you for making us part of your family. Thank you for this work of grace that's been done. But do we not remember that in the physical body of Christ, he endured extreme suffering? And we like to just disassociate that. Say, oh, well, maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. But that's not the case at all. In other words, we see that none of us suffer for our own righteousness. By the way, that's something we need to be aware of as well, because I think we miss this sometimes. We'll say, oh, well, I'm doing righteousness, and because of that, you know, I'm suffering. No, you have no righteousness to offer. Let me, let me, let me, let me inform you of this, ready? Before salvation, there was no righteousness that you had to offer God. Right? Let me, let me let another little secret, right? Since salvation, you still have no righteousness to offer God. The righteousness we have is imputed righteousness. It's righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. So if I suffer, hear me, if I suffer for righteousness sake, it is not for my righteousness which I suffer. It is for his righteousness which I suffer. His afflictions continue to be realized through his body. Paul continued, who now rejoice in my sufferings, verse 24, for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, while as mentioned already, Paul had spoken of this personal suffering on behalf of the Colossian believers. It is in the final statement of this verse that Paul explains just how the afflictions of Christ continue to be fulfilled. It's important, again, to recognize that Paul is not being redundant in his declaration of suffering for you, the Colossian believers, and suffering for his, his Christ's body's sake, the church. But rather, Paul is making a distinct claim that the afflictions of Christ continue through his body. It is the church who is the pillar of truth, and therefore, it is the church who will experience the sufferings of Christ because it is the church who is the physical representation of the body of Christ on the earth. In other words, I, I summarize with this. It is for us to suffer with Christ. It is ordained by God that we will suffer with Christ and for him if we are to also experience his glory. We are his church. We are his body. We are his workmanship. We are his ambassador. We are his light in a world of darkness. We are his people. We are his creation created anew. We are those espoused the recipients of his grace we are his redeemed and we are the sheep of his pasture it is for us to know him to know him in his power to know him in his suffering to know him in his death to know him in his resurrection again Philippians 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection I find this so interesting because we speak of that and everyone wants to know power resurrection power but again I remind you if you're going to know resurrection power, you first must die. <laughs> so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul begins by saying that I may know him in his death. He mentions death in a moment, being conformable to his death in a physical sense. But by saying resurrection power, he's saying that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, which means I must first die to myself and physically die to know the, 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 the resurrection. But he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. 
We are to grow in the knowledge of his person, his grace, his love, and his word. And if we are to know him in fullness, then we must embrace his sufferings. That's just all there is to it. Again, you don't get to pick and choose what you want out of, out of a Christian life, out of the following Christ. Simon Peter wrote that to suffer for righteousness' sake is a blessing. While men falsely accuse the followers of Christ as evildoers, we have an opportunity to speak truth and defend the faith, and this alone is a blessing in suffering. I want to read this verse, and I was sharing with our men in our prayer time yesterday morning, and, and I'll, I'll be finished in a few moments, so bear with me. I'm not going to say to conclude, because I'm not conc- But in 1 Peter 3, 12 through 16, I was reading and studying through this in relation to the sufferings of Christ, as Peter mentions, and something clicked and stood out to me that I have never connected before. I know this theological truth, but I've never seen it so plainly stated in this passage of Scripture ever. And it just, it just it stood out. And there's a reason as to why this is so. So as we read through this verses, I'll stop and explain. 1 Peter 3, 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Verse 14. And this is a verse that is often isolated, not taken out of its context, not used misappropriately, but just not connected with what's to follow. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. I've heard that verse quoted, referenced, I've myself within its context. You're blessed to identify and associate in the sufferings of Jesus. But then I've also many times quoted and referenced verse 15 without relating it to verse 14 and verse 16 that follows. Look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now notice something here quickly. Verse 14 ends with a semicolon. Verse 15 begins with a coordinating conjunction, but... And what that means is it's connecting these two thoughts together. They are continuation of thought. But then you'll find verse 15 ends in a colon. And in English grammar, a colon connects two independent clauses that stand alone, two independent clauses, but the second clause explains the first clause. So really, you should not read verses 14 or 15 without 16 and vice versa. So 14, 15, and 16 are all connected together And it's teaching us a great truth. We speak of verse 14 about we're blessed to identify in the sufferings of Jesus. And let me ask you, is that not true? If we suffer for righteousness sake, isn't that wonderful? Because remember, the only way you can genuinely suffer for righteousness sake is that his righteousness be imputed to you because you have no righteousness for which to suffer. So if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed because you are of God in Christ, which is the blessing. But then if you look at verse 15, we use this verse so often as rightly so and in its proper context to explain apologetics and that we are to be ready to give answer to any man that asketh reason of the hope that is within us. In other words, we must be ready and willing to defend the faith. And we must be equipped to defend the faith. But then look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Verse 16 is explaining the truth that's spoken in verse 15, which is connected to verse 14, directly connected. So let's read these again together, verses 14, 15, and 16. Let me explain what Paul is saying, or Peter's saying. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, 
happier, you're blessed. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but rather than being fearful and troubled, sanctify. The word sanctify here is to set apart, that we are recognizing that God is set apart all of this mess, from all of this nonsense, from all of this trouble, Christ and Christ alone is first and foremost. He is preeminent. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason the hope that's within you, that is in you with meekness and fear. Notice as well, it's interesting that sanctify the Lord God in your hearts ends in a colon also, which is now the second part is explaining that part. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? It means that we recognize God is preeminent and first Christ is preeminent and that we are now equipped, giving ourselves totally to him that we may be able to defend the faith and be able to give answer when asked of the hope and the reason of the hope that's within us. But then verse 16, how does this happen? What's the explanation? Having a good conscience that whereas though they speak evil of you, this goes back to that terror of them, don't be afraid of them though they speak evil of you, as though you were an evildoer, that they may be ashamed that fall and that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So he's saying, if you're suffering for righteousness, you are blessed because you have no righteousness of your own. But notice what he's actually saying here. When you see 14, 15, and 16 together as they are, you begin to understand it is a blessing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And then verse 15, oh, here's apologetics. You know, always be ready, be equipped, and, and ready to give answer of the reason of the hope that is within you when any man may ask. Oh, and your conversation is, make sure your conversation is good in Christ. You have a good conversation following him. And he says that not be afraid of the evildoers. They're going to falsely accuse you. But here's what all that is saying. Paul, or Peter is literally stating here that it is through suffering for righteousness that God provides an opportunity for believers to defend the faith and to give answer of all that is asked as they are falsely accused as evildoers when they're really identifying with the righteousness of Jesus. So suffering is good for us. And one of the reasons why it is good for us is because it is through such suffering God is opening the door for us to be apologists and to defend the faith while being falsely accused of wrong Christ. The Hebrew writer continued, called us to embrace his reproach, Hebrews 13, 12, and 13. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. This is about Jews and Gentiles, of course, now that he suffered without the gate, and, and he suffered for the cause of redeeming, the people, sanctifying the people through his blood, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Paul emphasized the glory which will be revealed as, as a result of the suffering we experience for righteousness, Romans 8, 18. For I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then in 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18, Paul says this, again, writing to the Corinthian believers, for our light affliction which is but for a moment. Now remember, I just read to you Acts 19 where the Lord tells Ananias, I will show Paul what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here Paul says, oh, by the way, guys, our light affliction. Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And yet Paul's identifying that as just such a light affliction, which is but for a moment, very temporal, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now verse 18 is the key here. While we look not at the things which are seen, 
but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are So Paul is saying when we have a proper eternal perspective, we will view all of this suffering as light suffering for a temporal moment because we recognize there is an eternity that God is working his glory to be revealed in, in eternity. Simon Peter exhorted believers to rejoice in the privilege of identifying in the sufferings of Jesus. 1 Peter 4.13, Peter says, But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If we are to reign with Christ, we must also identify in the sufferings of Christ. While we do not enjoy suffering, I don't enjoy suffering. And if you, if you are in your right mind, you don't enjoy suffering. Let us not suffer for our unrighteousness, but let us rejoice in being a partaker of the sufferings of Christ for his righteousness sake. I can never suffer for my righteousness. See, I think we've, we've really missed this. We think, oh, I'm, I'm really doing right and therefore I'm suffering. No, you don't suffer for your righteousness. You suffer for his righteousness. You know what we do suffer for? We suffer for our unrighteousness. But we do not suffer for our righteousness. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, it's only because it's his righteousness, which means you are identifying the sufferings of Christ. So rejoice. We as well have a part of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, the sufferings of Christ as manifested in his physical representation of his body, the church, have yet to have been completed and fulfilled. We are taking part in his sufferings as they continue to unfold, as we identify in his righteousness. So let us rejoice in suffering for righteousness' sake, and let us understand that suffering truly is good, as Peter stated, in that through suffering, God is providing the opportunity for us to declare his truth, and the gospel. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you.